This podcast was produced in Melbourne on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land. Content warning. The following story contains discussions of sexual violence and child sex abuse. I'm Renee Davidson and this is The Kicker, a weekly podcast bringing you stories from Australia's newest journalists. For the past year, quite a controversial inquiry has been debated in the halls of Victorian Parliament. The inquiry called for a review of Victoria's Child Sex Offender Register in response to increasing pressure for the register to be made public. Over 80 submissions were made from various advocacy groups, political parties, criminologists and legal experts. The report was published last week on the 6th of September. I spoke with reporter Maeve McGregor online. Hi Maeve, thanks for joining us today. Hey Renee, it's good to be with you. So quite a lot has been happening in Parliament this week. The Legal and Social Issues Committee has just released their report on the inquiry into Victoria's Sex Offender Register and how the information on that register is managed. So you've been following this. Um, Can you start off by telling us what is a sex offender register? Well, Renee, sex offender registers were actually first enacted in the United States during the early 1990s. It was the murder of her daughter in July of 94 that led just three months later to what the country now knows as Megan's Law. The best thing that they can do is lock them up and throw away the key, but they're not doing that. So if they're not going to do that, at least let us know who they are so we can watch them. And about 10 years later, we imported them here in Australia. Basically, they contain the names and details of persons convicted of certain sexual offences and particularly against children. So once the offenders serve their sentence and is released, by virtue of being on the register, they're required to report certain information to the police for a specified period of time. And that information typically includes address, phone number, internet provider, basically anything that allows the police to keep an eye on the offender and their whereabouts and their activities, right? So importantly, sex offender registers, they vary between jurisdictions in terms of the nature of reporting obligations and periods, whether registration is mandatory or discretionary and the nature of access to the register. Okay, and then what happens if the offender doesn't comply? So it's really strict. The offender will face about two to five years imprisonment if they don't. And so what's been going on here? What was the reason that Parliament launched the inquiry last year? Right, Renee. So the inquiry was actually prompted by a motion led by Darren Hinch, Justice Party MP Stuart Grimley. And in terms of what led to that, well, we've had some very high-profile cases of child disappearances, such as Daniel Morcombe. Well, the search to find the body of Daniel Morecambe widened today as police and his parents accept it could take longer than hoped. Queensland police are calling in more people to help in the search for the body of Daniel Morecambe. For the first time tonight, we can show you chilling video of an alleged confession from the man accused of murdering schoolboy Daniel Morecambe. Of course, we've also had a royal commission into child sex abuse. This, I hope, will help with healing, but I specifically hope that its recommendations will help us ensure that this never, ever happens again. So it's really a combination of those events which have led to growing calls for the creation of a public sex offender register. 
The government wants the states and territories to agree to the names, photos and postcodes of convicted child sex offenders being made available on a website. If it prevents one child from falling prey to a pedophile in our country, then it's something that's worth pursuing. From what you've briefly told me, Maeve, the debate here is centred on people who are asking for the register to be made public, and then there are those who are saying, no, we cannot make the register public. But before we get into this, can you first tell me, what is the purpose of a sex offender register? Right, so the purpose of a sex offender register is largely coloured by the extent and nature of disclosure or access, right? So in Victoria, what we have is a limited access scheme. Only certain classes of persons or organisations authorised by the Chief Commissioner of Police can access the register. So the central purpose of our sex offender register in Victoria is to reduce the risk of reoffending. And secondary purposes also include things like to assist law enforcement in the investigations of any subsequent offences and also to prevent the offender from working in child-related employment. So by contrast, the thinking behind a public sex offender register is that public knowledge of the identity and whereabouts of a convicted sex offender protects the community and that is because it enables them to avoid the offender. Okay, so the logic for a sex offender register here is to assist police with investigations and to prevent reoffending. You also mentioned that the Darren Hinch Justice Party was a vocal supporter of a public register and that you spoke with Justice Party MP Stuart Grimley. Yeah, that's right, Renee. Essentially, we believe in doing all we can to protect our children and we believe that having information on potential risks to the safety of a child uh, within the community that information should be made available to parents, caregivers um, and uh, and the wider community. Anything that we can do to protect uh, kids from harm, uh, we should be looking at. You know, I think when it comes to children and their safety, any sort of argument such as Stuart is just intuitively persuasive. And, you know, I can't really imagine there would be people wanting to disagree. Yeah, look, I agree with you, Renee. The the arguments Stuart raises really do carry a lot of intuitive or emotional appeal. But I also spoke to consulting criminologist Karen Gulp, and she told me that public sex offender registers are in fact predicated on three key myths or misconceptions about sex offenders. And the first one goes to the whole idea of stranger danger. It's very clear uh, from the data that the vast majority of sex offences are committed by people known to the victim and often uh, family members. And that's particularly the case with um, offences against children. We know that, you know, 83% of child sex assault victims are assaulted by someone they know. Only 10% are assaulted by a stranger. So the idea of um, a sex offender as as a stranger, uh, which really underpins public sex offender registries, just doesn't hold. That's, That's a myth. So tell me about the other two myths. Well, Renee, the second and third myths turn on, one, the idea that sex offenders are incapable of rehabilitation, and two, therefore will necessarily re-offend. And this line of thinking was really reflected in what Stuart Grimley said to me. You've got to make the distinction between a pedophile and a sex offender um, if you're talking about rehabilitation. A sex offender is not necessarily a pedophile. Pedophiles are, uh, yeah, they they have a an an innate love of children, um, 
So that's that's something that you cannot train that out of someone. You can't rehabilitate that out of someone. Well, I've got to say, that's what I would have assumed also. Yeah, you're right. It's a really widely held misconception. But as Karen Gelb pointed out to me, it's not backed up by the evidence. That also has been disproven with uh, research that has shown uh, low recidivism rates, um, low reoffending in terms of sex offence reoffending. Now, I have to acknowledge that we, you know, we know that the reporting rates for sex offences are very low, but even so, um, the best research, the most robust research shows that the reoffending rates are much lower for sex offenders than for other types of offenders. What did the inquiry have to say about the prospects of rehabilitation for these sexual offenders? So there were actually a number of submissions on this. What the inquiry found was that programs aimed at rehabilitating sex offenders are often successful and should be maintained. Right, so pretty much public registers don't work? Yeah, and the research says that they're just not evidence-based, right? So the inquiry heard from a number of law reform bodies, legal experts, and even some prominent victim rights groups like Brave Pass. What really stood out was their shared view that public sex offender registers are not fit for purpose. They do not reduce recidivism or act as a general deterrent. And in fact, the research went so far as to suggest that public sex offender registers can actually have the opposite effect and increase recidivism. Right. Wow. How could it increase offending? Well, it brings us back to rehabilitation. Experts say public registers often stigmatise offenders and that this very alienation from the community directly inhibits the prospects of the offender's rehabilitation. I spoke to Greg Barnes, SC, from the Australian Lawyers Alliance on this point. One of the reasons you do get reoffending in some cases is because of stress, uh, stress factors and, and, the, and the lack of connectedness to the community that people feel. And so it's paradoxical that, you know, we want public, some people want public registers which will further alienate people uh, and make them the targets for uh, abusive behaviour and vigilantism, et cetera, increase stress and therefore create a greater risk uh, that they might reoffend. And Karen Gold made a similar point. You know, if the, re- if the objective is reducing recidivism, then it can't be helpful to have to have people shunned, to have people denied employment, denied housing. You know, not not able to move freely about in the community. It simply is not good for reintegration and rehabilitation. The way to reduce recidivism is to help people reintegrate by supporting them and getting them into treatment. Okay, and do those same or I guess similar arguments also apply to more restricted access sex offender registers? Yeah, you're right, Renee, they do. So take a listen to what Greg Barnes SC had to say. Well, there is no evidence to suggest that sex offender registers lead to a reduction in offending. What this says is that the register is not risk-based. So, in other words, uh, instead of the register being based on whether or not a person is a high risk of reoffending or a low risk of reoffending, it simply lumps everyone together and puts them on the register, uh, and that's problematic. What does he mean by lump everyone together? Isn't there discretion about who gets put on the register? Well, yes and no, Renee. So. It's discretionary to place offenders convicted of sexual offences against adults 
on the register, right? And that's only in cases where the court is of the view that the offender poses an ongoing risk to the community. But in all other cases involving sex offences against children, it's mandatory. And it's precisely the mandatory nature of our register, which has law reform bodies like the Australian Lawyers Alliance, saying that our scheme, our register, operates in a punitive manner instead of just a post-sentence tool. Yeah, I can see how that could lead to some really perverse results. You know, maybe an 18-year-old boy um, who's had consensual sex with his 15-year-old girlfriend would automatically be registered, but maybe not necessarily the offender who violently raped a woman? Yeah, that's exactly right, Renee. And that's one of the big debates that occupied the inquiry, the, the many problems posed by mandatory registration. I'm against mandatory anything when it comes to judicial decision-making because I think the judge is the only person who can who hears all the evidence, who understands everything about a particular case and has to have discretion to make the most appropriate order for that particular case. So is the solution here to give judges more discretion? Well, the experts suggest that in lieu of scrapping the scheme altogether, more discretion would certainly help. So definitely removing mandatory registration as a start. It's up to the judge to decide whether the risk posed by the offender warrants his inclusion on the register, right? And it's something that the county court has actually been calling for for many, many years. Right. And I guess what does the Darren Hinch Justice Party think of this argument? Well, Stuart Grimley basically said he didn't believe the courts could be trusted to properly decide who belongs on the register. And that's just indicated through many, many sentences that are handed down, for instance, for murder or manslaughter. They are nowhere near the maximum penalty, despite the crimes themselves being, you know, can it get any worse than this? Um, But still, the judges, magistrates don't hand down the maximum penalty because they have that discretion. Right. I mean, isn't that the judge's job to weigh all the considerations of the case? They're not supposed to give the maximum penalty every time, right? Yeah, exactly. So under the Sentencing Act, judges are required to consider other factors. So they're meant to consider things like mitigating circumstances and prospects of rehabilitation. So in terms of the registers, the absence of discretion is problematic because it inevitably results in a very high number of low-risk offenders being placed on the register. Wow. So how many people are on the register in Victoria right now? Well, according to the report, the number is sitting over 9,000, but only half of those cases are actually active. But even so, that's still an extremely high number and a huge burden on police resources. What do the experts say we should do about this? Well, in terms of reform, all seem to be in favour of one of two options. So this is what Karen Gelb had to say. I think scrapping it all together is is one option. I do understand the law enforcement uh, preference for having it, but if there is to be one, then I think it needs to be judicial discretion about whether someone is placed on that and there needs to be no public access. Okay, so no public access and judicial discretion. What did the others say? Well, the Australian Lawyers Alliance had a similar view. In its submissions, it basically said that we should maintain a limited access register but introduce a judicial discretion. So that aligns with what we've already said. Greg Barnes, however, was of the view that we should at least introduce a discretion and also invest all those resources that we save 
into things like rehabilitation and community reintegration for the offender. Thanks, Maeve, for those insights into this very, you know, challenging and nuanced debate. What were some of the inquiry's major findings regarding the report? Well, in terms of what we've discussed today, Renee, I think there are two key recommendations which I think allow both sides of the debate to claim a win. So on the one hand, the committee accepted the arguments against mandatory registration. So it's recommended that the Victorian government order an independent review of the operation and effectiveness of the Sex Offender Register Act. On the other hand, the committee didn't fully accept the argument that most sex offenders have a low risk of reoffending, right? And that's because of underreporting of sex offences generally. So the committee has therefore recommended that the Victorian government task the Victorian Law Reform Commission with an inquiry into the circumstances in which a limited public access register scheme could be trialled. Right, so that second point you mentioned there is obviously a small win for the Darren Hinch Justice Party and, you know, victim rights advocates. Yeah, I think you're right, Renee. Cool, so where to next? Well, the government has six months to respond in writing to the recommendations made by the committee. So I think it's really just a case of we'll have to wait and see. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maeve, and for shedding light on this issue. Great. It's been a pleasure, Renee. Thank you. You've been listening to The Kicker, brought to you by the RMIT Graduate Diploma of Journalism. For more in-depth stories, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next time. Despite the fact that there have been, you know, no cases linked to the sex industry and no significant outbreaks originating in the sex industry, 18 months into a deadly pandemic, sex workers have still faced this really constant, inappropriate media reporting um, and scapegoating from, from the government and police.